Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the first letter of John. First John, chapter 4 and verse 7. Our text this morning carries us from verse 7 to verse 11. And uh, those words that we just sang, if you're unfamiliar with the deep, deep love of Jesus, probably sound like a bit of an exaggeration. Or maybe just kind of sentimental religious talk. But if you have known a life without love, and if you have known the joy of the love of Christ, oh my, then you will know that all you need to trust is that deep, deep love of Jesus. And it's that love that we are considering this morning. Uh, So we are in the middle of a sermon series we're calling Behold Your God, discovering who God is and what He's like. And each sermon in this series has been an attempt to explain a different attribute of God. The attribute is something that is true about God. And the question that we uh, face when we approach a series like this is how are we going to be able to even talk about God? How will we know what God is like? We could describe a fire as, as warm and, and bright, an apple as round and shiny, but we can't see God. How are we going to know what God is like in order to do a whole sermon series on Him? This is part of the thing that makes this series uh, such a countercultural thing, especially in our area of the country. Because of a lot of people, the people that you interact with at work and at school, uh, maybe even yourself having come in here this morning, um, think that God, if He exists, uh, is just a God of our imagination. We can't really know Him for who He is, uh, but we can try to imagine what God might be like if He really exists. But the Bible presents a completely different understanding of God. The Bible presents God as one who is known because He makes Himself known. And He has made Himself known in this book, the Bible. The first sermon in the series was to explain to you the fact that God is knowable and He's made Himself known through Jesus, His Son. Now, we are dealing this morning with the theme of God's love. And The main verse that I want to point you to in this text is the very first, that is verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Now, before I get into this, I want to point out something that makes this topic so difficult. Um, When I preached the sermon on God's holiness, I kind of thought that would be the most difficult sermon to preach. And the reason why I thought it would be difficult is because we hardly ever talk about holiness in our everyday uh, speech. We don't often use the word holy unless we're using it profanely in some way. It's kind of like the far side of the moon. You never see it. It doesn't really affect you. That's what I thought would be difficult about the the topic of holiness. And the thing about the topic of love is that, and the problem with dealing with the topic of love is that we think we know about it. And the problem is that we think of God's love as being kind of like ours, just a lot bigger. It's kind of like if, if, you were to go to, if you were to go to the Niagara Falls and try to explain to somebody what it was like, you might get some water in a glass and pour it on the ground and say the Niagara is kind of like this, except a lot bigger. We kind of think God's love is like ours, except bigger. But the two problems with that are these. First of all, Every one of us knows that there's a limit to our love. You know that? 
Have you been in relationships when you realize there is a limit to my love? And so we project that onto God. And we assume, okay, if my love has a limit, if that's what is, love has limits, then, then there must be at some point to which God says, that's it. I'm not loving you anymore because I've been there. There is a point to which I'll say to someone, that's it, I'm not loving anymore. So we project that limit onto God's love when in fact, if God is holy as we saw that he is a couple weeks ago, which means that he is above, beyond, and distinct from everything that he has created, Surely he is also holy in his love, which means his love is above, beyond, and distinct from any other kind of love. So it's dangerous for us to think that we know about God's love because we tend to think that God's love is like ours except just bigger. And the other problem with with thinking that we're familiar with the idea of God's love, it's like ours just bigger, is this. There are certain things that I would never let to happen to people I love because I love them. A few years ago, when we lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, my kids, my, my daughter just learned how to ride a bike, and she was riding her bike uh, in a parking lot. And for some reason, she went, on her, on her little bike, she went straight toward the edge of this wall. There's kind of a drop-off, about, about four or five feet. And she was going straight toward this, this drop-off, which below was just a hard sidewalk. And so I start running after her to try to stop her from going over the edge of the parking lot. And I couldn't run fast enough. And there she goes, boom, right over. Well, if I had been there, she was okay. I don't know how, but she was okay. If I had been there, if I had been able to run fast enough, I would have stopped her because I love her. Sometimes it feels like God let us go over the wall. And so we think, I would have stopped someone from going over the wall that I love. Why doesn't God let me from going over the, go, go over the wall since he loves me? And maybe he doesn't. You see, that's a problem. When we project our love onto God's love, we put limits on the, that love, and we think maybe because of what's going on in my life right now, maybe God doesn't love me. So we must set all these ideas aside about what God's love is and be prepared to understand in a fresh way from God's word what it really means that God loves us. Every sermon in this series has kind of crushed and healed me in fresh ways, but none more than this one because it is dealing with a topic that Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you would have the strength to comprehend it. And actually, it's incomprehensible. What strikes me about that passage in Ephesians 3 is that Paul didn't say, I pray that you'd have the strength in your inner being to comprehend how holy God is, or how merciful God is, or how righteous God is. Paul said, I pray that you would have the strength in your inner being to comprehend with all the saints the love of God which actually exceeds our ability to understand it. And so the topic this morning and really the, the argument of the Apostle John here is the, the, the thesis of my sermon, which is simply this. Because God loves us, we should love others. <laughs> he says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Now, I'm just, just for the sake of time, I'm going to only be able to focus on that one part of the proposition, which is, if God so loved us, which actually takes the majority of, of, of John's, or a good part of John's discussion between verses 7 and, and verse 11, right? Now, before I show you how this is structured, the man who wrote these words, the Apostle John, was at this time a stooped-over, white-haired elderly gentleman many years ago he wrote this in, as, a, as an old man but he also wrote another book that we have in the bible recording events that happened when he was strong and had dark hair and was robust this is the gospel of john it, six times in that book john refers to himself but never by name whenever he refers to himself he always refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. My wife was reading this to our kids uh, a couple years ago, a little while ago. She was reading a passage in which John speaks about himself, that disciple whom Jesus loved. And the kids were asking my wife, why does he talk about it? Who is he talking about? And why doesn't he just come out and say his name? Why... Why would somebody, I want to put this question to you, why would somebody, instead of referring to the name by which they're called, speaks of the one by whom they're loved? Why would John refer to the fact, not his name, but the one who loves him? Would you ever refer to yourself as the man whom Jesus loves? The woman whom Jesus loves? The teenage girl whom Jesus loves, the teenage guy whom Jesus loves, the boy or girl whom Jesus loves. Would you ever have the audacity, the thought, to refer to yourself by that? And if so, why? See, the Apostle John, writing years later, later never got over that love. And so he writes these words as a stooped-over, white-haired man, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So I'll unfold this text to you in three parts, and we'll see the source of God's love, <clears throat> our problem with love, and third, the display of God's love, okay? So here, that's how we'll structure this. The sort, look at the source of God's love, the, our problem with love, <clears throat> and then finally, the display of love. So first of all, let's look at the source of love. You see this in verse 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then in verse 8, he actually penetrates a layer deeper when he says, because God is love. So John is telling us two things here. He's giving us a fact and a reason. The fact is that God is the source of love, and then the reason is that God is love. So let's take that in, in that order under this heading of the source of love. We'll look at, we'll look at the, the fact of it and then the reason for it. So the fact that love is from God, that God is the source of love. Over the years... I've heard people say things like this. If I can't have a relationship with that person, I don't even want to live. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if I must continue in a relationship with this particular person, there's a, a, a love, there's love lacking in that relationship, I would rather die. I wouldn't want to live if I couldn't be this, with this person who loves me. And if I, if I have to be with this person in a relationship where, where there's no love, I would just rather die. 
I don't think that those are exaggerations of lovesick or deeply heartbroken people. I think those are the truest statements a person could make because they reflect a very real feature of the human condition, which is this. Life without love feels worthless. Life without love feels worthless. And that's not, not, not just human psychology. In Psalm 63, verse 3, the psalmist says, your loving kindness, speaking to God, your loving kindness is better than life. In other words, this. What could be worse than dying? Living without love. So better take away mere existence than to be forced to exist without love. What could be worse than dying? What could be worse than just existence ending? Having to continue in existence without anybody who looks at you and says, I adore you for who you are. If you take that away from me, my life is an endless desert without oasis. My, my life is, is, is bland, tasteless. Don't make me live any longer if I can't live without love. Love is something that, that all our popular ballads and songs are about. It's the theme of popular movies. And, and we know this intuitively, that, that life without love is, feels worthless. But few people stop to ask why this is the case. I mean, I think we all intuitively sense that, that life is, is empty or meaningless without a relationship that is characterized by love, but why, why is this the case? And that is where we go on to why God is the source of love. What is it about God that makes him the source of love? The answer is, is to the, the question, like, why is life this way? Is because the author of life, God himself, is love. Now, how is it that God is love? You see this in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is not only the source of love, he himself is love. And to understand this, this takes us back to what we learned a few weeks ago when we talked about the fact that God is a trinity. By, by trinity, we mean when we say God is a trinity, we mean that God eternally exists, the one God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each fully God, yet distinct from one another, yet there is one God. And we had a hard time wrapping our minds around that because we can't. But it is true. Now, the fact that God is love connects to the fact that God is, is a three-person God. And I'll explain it this way. For, there to, for love to exist at all, there has to be persons to love each other. But for that to be truly love, it has to be a selfless delight in each other. Now, you know intuitively that for love to be love, it has to be selfless delight. And I'll try to prove this to you by telling you a couple scenarios. That is that love is selfless delight. If it's not selfless and if it's not delight, it's not love. Okay, picture a young man and he's gonna propose to uh, his girlfriend. So he gets down, he has the ring, gets down on one knee, and he says, baby, will you marry me? Now, 
they haven't been dating very long and she doesn't know him very well, so she, she figures, I better ask him, why do you love me? And so she says, why do you love me? And he says, because I couldn't live without you. And she blushes and smiles, but he says, no, no, really, I, I can't live without you. I can't keep a job. My parents kicked, them, kick, kicked me out of their basement. I'm really a mess and disorganized. I can't cook. Uh, I, I just really, I mean, I, I literally mean this. I can't live without you. Uh, you're, you're very skilled. You're talented. You have an apartment. It would be really helpful if you said yes. <laughs> After he dislodges the ring from his forehead, he'll begin thinking a little differently about this. What's wrong with that? It may have been delight, but it wasn't selfless delight right? So for love to be love, it has to be not just delight, but selfless delight. So he, he determines that he's not going to make the same mistake again. So he finds another girl. He finds another ring. He says, will you marry me? He's down on one knee. She says, we haven't known each other very long. Why do you love me? He says, good question. I, I know what you're afraid of. Don't worry. I really don't need you. In fact, there's really not much that you can offer to me that I don't already have. <laughs> uh, I can cook fine. I've got my own apartment. I have a job. Uh, and I know you're still worried about this. Just to allay any concern, I don't even find you attractive. <laughs> now, the reason why you laugh is because you know that for love to be love, it can't just be selfless, but there has to be a delight in the other person. <laughs> And we often worry either way. We're thinking, is this person just loving me because of what I can give to them? Or is this a selfless delight? Or am, are, are, they, are they just giving to me because somehow they're the sort of person that needs to give to someone else, but did they really find joy in me? Where in all the universe do you find eternal love like this? We find it in the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, finding endless, selfless delight in one another. Jesus said in John 17, he speaks of the glory and of the love that he enjoyed with, with his Father before the world began. God did not create us because he was lonely and needed somebody to love. God had within himself within his tri-personal nature, all the love that could be enjoyed. And he created humans so that out of the overflow of his tri-personal love, he can share that love with others. Let us love one another, John writes, because love is from God, because God is love. That is the truth. That is the source of love. Now, what does this mean for us? And I'll pause just briefly here before we move on to the next point to make a couple point, principles and then ap apply them. This means that, that the reason why God created us and created the universe was not because he was lonely and needed something to love, but out of the overflow of his love. This means that God did not create the universe just to demonstrate his power, just because he could, but because he loved which means love is prior to power. And this explains why 
if you're in a position of power and authority, that power will tend to corrupt you and the people that you have authority over unless that power is combined with love. It is said that, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that Adolf Hitler would often refer to God, but merely as God Almighty. God Almighty, but never God All-Loving. I think it's more than just a coincidence there that his conception of God as being powerful, but not being God as loving, it shaped the way he was. And my friends, it can shape the way we are too. You're a a parent, you're a grandparent, you're a manager at work, you have responsibility for people, you have authority over people. Are you exercising that authority in love? If you don't, it will corrupt you and others. The fact that love, secondly, a second point of application, the fact that love is from God because God is love also means that everything God does, he does in love. It is not, and this is easy for us to tend to think, that God's wrath is the opposite end of his love, and it's hard, time, hard for us to reconcile. See, all of God's attributes spring from his being love. He, can, he must If he's a God of love, he must show wrath against that which is unloving. God is loving in his power over your life. You might think, why is this happening to me? Why am I experiencing this this relational crisis? Why am I feeling this financial pressure? Why is God putting me through this? This is an exercise of God's power. Ah, yes, but it is his exercise of his love too. Everything God does, he does in love. So God created us to live in a loving relationship with him. He made us for love. And without love, life would be worthless. And yet something has gone terribly wrong. And it's completely obvious from the world that we live in. All right, so so much for the fact that God is the source of love, and so much for the fact that, yes, God is love. Yeah, but what about us? What about the world that we live in that seems to be this this baffling mixture of love and hate, of greatness and wretchedness? I mean, what's going on in my heart that finds it so hard to love? If love is from God and God is love, what's wrong with the world that I live in, including my own self? And that brings us to our problem with love our problem with love. And we see this in the text that John suggests in in three different phrases. In verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. He concedes the reality that there are people who do not love in this particular way. And then he also says in verse 10, not that we have loved God. So there is the fact that there is a failure on our part to love. And then he identifies what that failure is in verse 10. At the very last word of the verse, he says, our sins. So the fact that there are some who do not love, that we fail to love God, and that we have sins points to a problem with our love. Now, I use the word sin for the first time in this sermon. And for some of you, as soon as a person says sin, you immediately think that this, or or tend to think, maybe in the back of your mind, it comes with these connotations, that sin is kind of a word Uh, that religious people like to use to kind of wag a bony finger uh, against all the kinds of things that that they don't want people to do. It's kind of a a power play or or a using the weapon of shame to try to get people to behave in a certain way. And and maybe you think of sin 
uh, merely in terms of breaking certain rules or certain moral norms. If I break these rules, that's a sin. If I keep the rules, then that's, that's doing the right thing. But you see here, John, John's understanding of sin is far broader than just breaking of moral codes. He refers to sin as the failure to love, which is really what sin is. See, sin is not just the grimy, nasty, bent and twisted things that we can see so easily. Sin is not like the look of the orcs in Lord of the Rings, right? Sin comes in beauty. Sin comes dressed up. Sin comes looking sophisticated and cultured and noble. See, what the essence of sin is to treat something as ultimate that is not ultimate, to treat something as God that is not actually God. It is to seek our identity and our meaning and worth in something that cannot give us identity and meaning and worth. There's a, now I have to use an illustration from Chariots of Fire, and I, I know I referenced that movie last Sunday, and I hope you don't think that every illustration from now on is gonna be a Chariots of Fire illustration, okay? So just a little heads up. But there is a, there is a scene in which one of the runners is approaching, uh, anticipating a, running a race, and he's thinking through how, he, how, how much this winning this race means to him. And he says, he says this, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. You see what he's doing? He's doing what a lot of us do. We look at this, this one event this one thing, whether it's your career or whether it's a relationship or your, your body image or your, your religious respectability or your role as a mother or grandmother or father and grandfather and say, I just have that to justify my existence. And if I fail in that, I'm nothing. That is the failure to love God, the only one who can give us true worth. That is the meaning of sin. And John says, yes, we have sinned. We are, you, you might think this, well, it's not that I'm thinking, it's not that I am so proud and arrogant. The struggle that I have is that I am always thinking how pathetic I am. But isn't that also a form of self-centeredness? Isn't that also a form of inflating your importance? We tend to be like either the younger brother or the older brother in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. You remember the younger brother is the one that demanded his father's inheritance, took all the money and spent it in riotous living. And the thing at one point that was keeping the younger brother from accepting the fellowship and love of the father was all the bad things that he had done. But if you remember at the end of the story, there's an older brother and he also refuses to accept the love and fellowship of his father. But for the older brother, it wasn't because of all the bad things it was, he had done. It was because of all the good things he had done. See, whether it's because we think so much of ourselves or because we emphasize our wretchedness, either way, this, this inflated sense of our importance is keeping us from the love of God and understanding the love of God. So the question is this. How, if we have gone so far astray in our own thinking, if we have sought 
selfish delight in other things instead of selfless delight in God. How is God going to recenter us? How is he going to bring us back to himself? How is he going to demonstrate that he alone is the one who is worthy to be adored, to be worshipped, to find our true meaning and identity? And, and that's where we get to the display of God's love. We've seen the source of love is God himself. The problem, our problem with love is that we have failed to love what is truly lovely. And now we see the display of God's love. And here it is in verse 9. In this the love of God was displayed, made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There are two words here that I need to explain under this, this idea of God's display, or the display of God's love, and that is, first of all, the word to make manifest. You see this in the, the ESV, it's translated make manifest, and other uh, translations that may be translated to demonstrated or dis displayed. This comes from the word, a word that means to shine, just like a flashlight would shine, or the sun shines above us, like yesterday was a, a beautiful sunny day. And the question is, Yes, we know God is the source of love. God himself is love. But how will we receive the warmth and bright rays of God's Son? How will God's, of God's love, how will God's love be displayed is the question. And John says it. Here it is. Here is the shining of God's love. He sends himself. He sends his own Son who is God, come in the flesh to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the second word I need to explain. The word propitiation, it means an offering that does away with wrath. In other words, it is something that satisfies a problem. If you were to get in your car, drive recklessly down the road, break the laws, crash into another car, you damage property and people get hurt, you would have to pay something to satisfy the problem you made. That payment that you make that satisfies the problem, that fixes the problem, is the propitiation. What we have here is this scenario. God is the offended party here. We are the ones that have sinned against God, yet God himself stands as the propitiation. God himself becomes the sacrifice for our sin. What John is saying is this. The way God's love shines forth is by God himself being a sacrifice for our sin. This is how God's love is displayed. I was trying to, as I was preparing to preach this, I was trying to figure out how in the world can I take something so vast, so important, so life-changing and try to explain it in a way that, that we can understand how God's love is displayed? And I thought about Barabbas. For those of you who may be unfamiliar, Barabbas was a prisoner. He was, he was actually slated to be crucified 2,000 years ago on a Friday afternoon. And he knew he was going to die. He knew that he was under condemnation. But there was something else going on in the city of Jerusalem at that time. There was another man who 
the people, particularly the religious leaders, wanted to be crucified. The Roman governor at that time had the sense to realize that this man was innocent. And so he offered to them, he said, how about, he said, how about we, you, you tend to release a prisoner uh, around this time of the year. How about we just release this man, he's innocent after all, and, and let him go. And, and the crowd began to cry, no, don't release this one, release Barabbas. I wonder if Barabbas, sitting in his prison cell, heard his name being chanted outside. They're saying my name. They're saying, release Barabbas. And then the prison door swings open, and a guard appears, and he says, you can walk out. What's going on? There's been a prisoner swap. There's a guy that they really want to be crucified, and they want to let you go. (laughs) This is crazy. Yeah, yeah, everyone's been chanting his name. They're, They're saying, crucify him, crucify him, release unto us Barabbas. Who is it? some wandering prophet named Jesus. I wonder if Barabbas found his way to the cross. I wonder, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but I wonder if, and he certainly could have, I wonder if he looked up at the dying form of that man, knowing that the wood against which Jesus was nailed would have been the wood that bore Barabbas' own body. In my place, condemned he stood. That is the love of God made manifest. That Jesus himself bore the wrath of God, became that satisfying offering, that sin sacrifice that I and that you should have borne. The Bible doesn't tell us whether Barabbas was present that fateful Friday afternoon. But it does tell us that another man was present there at the foot of the cross. In fact, this man was the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples who was actually present at Jesus' crucifixion. One of them had actually sold Jesus, had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That leaves 11. The rest of the the 10 had run away out of fear, and there was one remaining. And the one remaining was the one who six times referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why would anyone have the audacity to say, my name's not important, What's important is the one who loves me because he saw the love poured out at the cross. See, the cross is the display of the love of God. You can't know the love of God unless you see it poured out for you at the cross. The way to know that you are loved and the way to have the childlike acceptance of this love is to realize that when God was pouring out his wrath upon his son, he was pouring out his love on you. In this was manifested the love of God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his only son to be a propitiation, a satisfying offering for our sin. 
therein is the love of God made manifest. No wonder, no wonder the fire of love that, that stuck with John till the rest of it, for the rest of his life. Where did he get that fire? Where did he get that? He got it from that little hill outside the city of Jerusalem. He got it from Mount Calvary. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. What do we do with this? This fact that God's love for us is so incomprehensible and yet poured out at the cross. Well, as I was thinking about how to preach on this passage, I realized that I was only getting to the first part of it, and that is God's love for us. There is a second part, and that is our love for others, and I'm going to save that for next Sunday because I think it's important enough for us to consider more carefully. But for now, what do you do with this? I have three things just to leave with you. First, since God's love is displayed in the cross of Christ, if you have not done this, you must trust and accept that this love is for you. If you haven't trusted in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, this is what you must do. This is, you, you may feel unworthy of this, or you may feel too good for this. And either way, you, either way, you need to come to the cross by faith and realize what Jesus did there was for me. And if you've never done that, or maybe you thought you have, maybe you always thought you did, maybe you just, just you assume that this was yours, and for the first time you realize, I never understood God's love. I always thought it was about me and my worth. Oh, my friend, come to the cross and entrust your life to Jesus as the one who rescues you from your sin. But second, if you've done this, if Jesus loves you this much, then you can trust and obey him. There is, there is no such thing as trusting that does not include obedience to Jesus. God does ask us to do hard things. He asks us to love in relationships that are very difficult, to be patient with people that annoy us, to bear up under trials that are very difficult. And sometimes we think, I don't want to do this, I want to be out of this. I want to, I want to, I want to get out of this road that, that, of following Jesus. But my friend, if, if Jesus loved you that much, then you can trust him, and if you trust him, you can obey him too. And third, you can know that everything that's happening in your life right now, if you are trusting in Jesus, is happening not in spite of God's love for you, but because of God's love for you. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. He, he says that in all these things, that is in tribulations and persecution and nakedness and danger and sword, in all these things, not despite all these things, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These things are not, are not things that are, are threatening to undermine you or to ruin you. These are the waves upon which God moves you toward the shore of his will for you. So trust that what's going on in your life right now is not in spite of, but because of God's love for you. And if you have this view of God's love that's poured out for you, 
then you can, like the Apostle John, call yourself that disciple whom Jesus loved. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, we're going to sing a song that will help us respond in faith to what we've heard. And it is, when I survey the wondrous cross, we'll speak of the love so amazing, so divine. But you know what? Before we do that, let's have a moment of quiet meditation on what you've learned. And I'll invite you in these few seconds, half a minute or so, to confess whatever lack of love you might have for God and others, to confess that you need his love for you, and to take some moments to gaze on it by faith, by considering what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Would you prayerfully and quietly consider these things? Our Father, we thank you for your love that was poured out for us at Calvary. And I pray that the fire of that love would stay with us and be in our hearts, prompted and enabled by your Holy Spirit within us. Father, I pray that as we sing, uh, the words that we're about to confess would not just be uh, parroting a poem, but they would be the true cry of our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name.